This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Miss Astrid Vendlant. She is Miss Tweed, uh, and her website talks about uh, the luxury industry, including the watch industry. Astrid, you were one of the first guests on Superlative, and now almost two years later, um, I'm joining you back. So much has happened, but first of all, what has been the most exciting thing you've been writing about lately? Ooh, well, I guess Audemars Piguet. <laughs> yes. Uh, Audemars Piguet, um, you know, uh, there's the new chairman, Alessandro Bogliolo, who uh, n- nobody expected he would um, take that job. Well, he would be chosen to to take that position. It's, he's the first non-family member, um, I mean, non Omar, you know, who's not an Omar or a Piguet, uh, to become chairman of Omar Piguet since the 1940s. Um, so that, you know, really uh, marks a new era. And um, I've been writing about, you know, what the future holds and um, who could be the, you know, the CEO, the next CEO after François Ribenamias uh, leaves next year. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Let, let's back up here. So, Audemars Piguet is independently owned, but it's not solely owned, meaning there are a couple of people have stakes in it, and there's a board of directors who makes decisions ostensibly. And right now, uh, Francois-Henri Benamias is the CEO, but he has announced that he is going to be leaving uh, sometime next year. Um, and it's not unclear where he's going to be going. He certainly hasn't made any decisions yet. But as you said, it leaves open uh, a new position. Who is going to be running Audemars Piguet and what will the future uh, of this company be? Will they just have a new CEO or they would go in an interesting direction where some are, some are all of the shares are, are, are bought out. And, and this is what you're trying to explore right now, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to explain, I mean, first of all, Audemars Piguet is one of the biggest success stories in, you know, luxury watchmaking, uh, the past decade. And, um, why is that? Like, give some context what that means. Well, it's gone from, well, I mean, I think Jasmine Audemars gave the numbers. I mean, when she joined, it was, uh, I think it was 90 million Swiss francs in 92, and now it's close to 2 billion. So, fantastic progression. Um, they have really stuck to their story and they have been consistent. Um, that has helped. Quality is there. Um, they invest a lot in research and innovation and um, they also have expanded their retail network. So as opposed to Patek Philippe, that's why it's difficult to compare the two the two companies' numbers because Patek Philippe has a wholesale model, whereas Audemars Piguet has really invested in its own boutiques and therefore it pockets the margin that, uh, let's say, Patek Philippe will give to wholesalers. And um, having your own boutique means you control the stock, you control the image, you control service. Um, there are a lot of advantages to that and it's very good for image. And we've seen that uh, Audemars Piguet, together with Patek, with Rolex, with Richard Mille, they're really, you know, the top four that uh, command the highest premiums in the secondhand market. So where do you think the company is going to go? And where do you want Audemars Piguet to go? What do you hope happens? Well, you know, it all, it's, it's all down to leadership. And I think, um, 
that is that is really the question because and the vision that the shareholders have for the company. You know, there are really two paths in front of Audemars Piguet right now. Either it continues to grow organically and they're investing in a new uh, manufacturer that is going to be up and running fully in 2025. Um, they've increased production to 50,000 uh, watches. And, you know, that could go up to 70,000 once that new plant is up and running. And they have to decide whether they're happy with that or whether they want to go to another level, which could be 200,000. That would mean significant investments. Whether the shareholders are ready to invest that money is a question, you see, to which I don't have the answer. But I, you know, I, I, it's really, um, I don't think I have a view on that. I think it's really what the shareholders want. Do they want Audemars Piguet? to grow organically or they want a step change and they really want it to become an even bigger company. And that's for them to decide without sacrificing quality, without sacrificing image, without being too ubiquitous. You know, there are also downsides. However, if you look at a Louis Vuitton, if you look at a Dior, they also control the retail. Uh, they have probably some of the biggest margins in, in the whole luxury galaxy. So, um, Audemars Piguet just has to decide whether it wants to become even bigger or or, or just continue growing uh, like it is right now. I remember a few years ago when they made that announcement where they said, we're only going to make 40,000 yeah, watches per year. And yeah. as you said, they now have up that to about 50,000. But isn't that a lot? You know, I sometimes like to compare to brands uh, such as Along and Zona, that have you know a very a very high end product, uh, very nicely made, uh, and they make you know under ten thousand watches a year, sometimes like around five thousand watches yeah, a year. Yeah, isn't forty or fifty thousand into a territory which is no longer that exclusive? I you know I, I just I, I don't really know actually. It's kind of a question because I'm not sure sort of what the market's able to absorb. But I just wonder if you if you if you shoot yourself on the foot by just increasing production that much? Well, I mean, you know, right now they're sitting pretty because there's much more demand than there's stock. And if you, uh, I would recommend, uh, you know, watch lovers to go to a boutique and ask them to buy a watch and see what happens. Uh, most people will tell you they have a good, very good time with the uh, sales assistant who's going to tell you all sorts of great stories about Mar Piguet, but they're not going to walk out with a watch. So today that's the state of affairs. If they increase production, maybe supply will still remain below demand. We don't know. They, they, you know, we don't have that information yet. But I would think, um, you know, I mean, right now, already at fifty, they're below demand. Uh, whether at seventy, they reach the point where they have where demand meets supply. That's, you know, we don't have that information yet. But I would think yes. How many years can you sustain demand like that? Of course, you can get away with doing it for a while, but it's very rare for a company to be able to sustain what is quite high demand. I mean, maybe that's not a huge number of production in the scheme of things, but the, I think what's important is with used watches being such an important part of the market, you can count on a lot of your watches having one, two, three, maybe more owners, and that means they start to compete with the sale of new watches. So if you want to keep 
pumping that many new watches in the market year after year after year, at some point you're going to have exceeded the people that already have one. Uh, then you have to find the people that want you know, two of your watches and then three of your watches. And I just wonder how long you can go doing that with there being such a thriving um, you know, pre-owned economy. And that only seems to be speeding up, not slowing down. Yes. And the other interesting point is, uh, you know, the price of uh, bestsellers has dropped from their peak end of March. So since April, uh, there was a report that I mentioned in the Miss Tweed newsletter uh, when I commented on LVMH's results. I also mentioned um, that the price for bestsellers in the secondhand market had fallen. And the biggest fall was for the Daytona, which uh, Rolex's Daytona, which dropped 21%. And one of the brands that saw the smallest decline was Audemars Piguet's Royal Oak, which dropped only 15%. So that tells you also about the brand's resilience. Now, also, let's remember, Rolex makes an estimated around 1 million watches a year. So you see, to come back to our earlier point about demand meeting supply, it seems that Audemars Piguet does have room for progression. You, you may be right. I really don't know. It's something that I'm definitely not expert in. But I think we've all seen what happens when a market is oversaturated with product. And if you continuously make more watches than the market um, has capacity to absorb, you then run into an issue with oversupply. And then it can be difficult to maintain luxury pricing, which is sort of really what it's all about. Um, it, basically, uh, what other companies learned ha- that you can sell any watch for the right price, which has you know, really been responsible for the discounting culture, which has typified the industry for the last you know, 20 or 30 years. A lot of brands are trying to move away from that, but there aren't a lot of models of how to sustain that. You know, people keep talking about the success of Rolex, but they never talk about the amount of money that Rolex puts into the market in the form of advertising and marketing. They have set budgets for it. You know, there's sort of a consistent amount they do. Do you think that enough companies are willing to make those consistent and ongoing marketing investments to sustain the demand that these higher productions are going to require? Yeah, I think Goodmark Piguet definitely has the means to invest in communication. And one of the things I mentioned in the story um, that was published just last Sunday was uh, Sunday, the 16th of October, was that uh, Audemars Piguet, you know, can up the ante in their special events for media, for, you know, high spending uh, customers. Um, It can also uh, increase, you know, its visibility. Um, Now, the question is, uh, will shareholders want to do that? If some shareholders want to sell their stake, well, they will be more in favor of keeping that marketing spend under control because they want to keep the margins high. So, you know, well, that, that they have to decide and it will also come down to the person they hire. But one thing is certain is that the new CEO of Audemars Piguet will be much more driven, led um, by the board than uh, François-Henri Benamias, who, you know, was in line with the board, but it was also given quite a bit of freedom. And I, I think everybody agrees that the new CEO will have less freedom, at least to start with. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mr. Benamias was sort of a head of sales or some element of sales before he was put in a position as CEO. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he was also head of North America at some point. Okay, so he had a couple of roles internally at the company, and he was promoted, and 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 you know he did very interesting things for the brand. Why is nobody talking about promotion from within? Are there no candidates within there? Why is the default a lateral move uh, or something like that from somebody from a different company? Well, we don't know that. We don't know. I mean, there could be internal candidates. You see that? I don't. I don't have the information. Um, I think. They want somebody with experience. And I mentioned some names in the story that I published uh, on October 16th. Um, so, you know, and those names are people who have experience running luxury watchmakers. And I think um, what is good is that when you bring somebody, you know, from outside the company, you get a fresh pair of eyes, a fresh look on things. Um the downside is that the person who is promoted internally knows the corporate culture, is in line already with the company's values and ways of doing things. So, you know, that there, there is no kind of cultural adaptation, which comes with, you know, somebody from outside. So, you know, that's something I'm sure the board is, 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 is kind of analyzing right now as they review um, the potential candidates. I could be wrong, but I believe that there was a name that wasn't included that I thought you may have included. And um, I'd like to sort of ask maybe why you did or didn't. Um, I don't know that he's looking for a job, uh, but I know that there's sort of been speculation about what he does next. I'm talking about uh, Jean-Christophe Baban, uh, the head of Bulgari. You know, we don't necessarily know what his plans and the plans of the Arnaud family are for the next several years. Um, And if he was to move on and stay in the industry, there would not be that many more elite positions for him to go. Running Audemars Piguet is is theoretically in his wheelhouse, and he'd be good at it. Just out of curiosity, why did he not make your list? Well, because right now, uh, I think he's in no hurry to leave Bulgari. And uh, and Bulgari's been doing very well, by the way. Uh, Dana Arnaud said uh, last Tuesday at the LVMH's uh, Q3 <clears throat> results that Bulgari had actually enjoyed a stronger growth than Tiffany. That's partly because there was a slowdown in the U.S. market, and Tiffany is very much exposed to the U.S. market, much more than Bulgari, which is very small comparatively. You know, I think, uh, you know, Jean-Christophe is also 60-something, um, and uh, maybe 63, I don't know, some, he's in his, you know, early, mid-60s. So, therefore, does he want to take on such a challenge at this age, knowing that he would have to be in the job for the next 10 years? That's right. another element to consider. So it is considered a challenge. Audemars Piguet is not sort of like, hey, take over the helm of this smooth running boat. It's There's a lot of things that needs to be done. There needs to be energy. There needs to be some vision. There needs to be a heck of a lot of politics. Like this is going to be a demanding role. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and I think you'll need somebody who's a smooth operator, who's good at managing relations, human relations with the board. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, and I think they have to decide quite soon because, uh, let's say they take somebody who already, um, is in place at a brand, they would have a non-compete clause in their contract. That means they can't work for a rival for a year. So that means that any new CEO who comes in will start at the earliest, early 24, I would think. Now, 
It's known that Audemars Piguet made the decision to, in large part, sell direct to consumers through their own stores. There's a small number of partners, but um, they're sort of mostly trying to go direct. How important is that to their current business model? Meaning, could they go back to a more traditional uh, wholesale model, or are they so wedded to the way they do things right now that um, there's sort of no going back and that anyone taking over would definitely need to maintain that, that sales model? Yeah, I think that's here to stay. And I think that is the model that many successful luxury brands have followed. And LVMH definitely is in huge favor of that. Um, so I don't, th- I don't see any change in that, to be honest. Now, does that imply that the third party retailer doesn't offer anything anymore? Because it's, it's obviously a contentious issue. There's a lot of opinions here or there. I feel that there's a special something that you bring to the table when you're not selling your own item and it sort of frees sales up to be maybe a little bit more effective. I, I, again, it's just sort of, I'm, I'm very open-minded to the idea that there is something to be said about having a third party sell your, your product. Obviously there's less margin in it. There's more sharing, more cooperation needs to be done. Are you of the opinion that the director sales model is the better model of the two for most companies? Well, I think it depends on your size. I think okay. it depends on your resources. If, you know, Audemars Piguet had the resources to invest in their own boutiques, um, you know, let's say other small watchmakers, let's say MBNF or Ashmoser or other, um, you know, they don't have the means yet to invest in boutiques. Same thing in fashion, you know, fashion, there are lots of really successful fashion brands uh, this week, I'm actually writing about success stories in Fend Fashion and mentioning Jacques Mousse. And Jacques Mousse has followed for the past 10 years a wholesale model and done extremely well. And it's just opened its, its first uh, pop-up boutique, Avenue Montaigne, just two, two weeks ago. Um, but now it has the means to invest in its own retail network. So it's more a question of where you are in your development and in your growth. And once you are at a certain level of revenue, and profits, you can take that money and invest it in boutiques. Um, Patek has the money to invest in boutiques, but it has a very clear strategy of, uh, you know, maintaining relationship with wholesalers. And it doesn't seem like it's ready to change that anytime soon. In fact, Patek Philippe, they're not really much into change from what I see. They're more into, you know, sticking to the old for as long as possible. Which, which, by the way, is, 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 I think, antagonizing lots of customers who are growing frustrated about not being able to get a Patek Philippe. Uh, you could say the same thing with Rolex, and that's, a, that's an entire podcast conversation unto yeah. itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I want to talk more about your process in terms of the news gathering. Uh, you are someone who I imagine has to continuously develop and maintain relationships with people in the industry because you you know you have to do that in order to get the call it insider information mm-hmm. that allows you to cover the stuff as you do. What's that been like, and how has it changed over the last couple of years? You know, when 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 you were sort of starting out on the Miss Tweed mission, you were sort of facing one set of variables. Certain variables have changed. What has is it been like in the business of gathering the information? It's it's become easier and easier. Okay. First of all, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know if you're going to believe this, but it's really true. At the Geneva watch days, 
I, I lived in a very interesting experience. I had a real bain d'amour. In fact, I mean, the number of people who came to me and said, oh, you're Miss Tweed. I love what you do. I think it's great. It was high time. We had an independent media and, and you know, you really write a lot about watchmaking. It's great. We can see that Miss Tweed loves watches. So yes, Miss Tweed loves watches and loves, love, <laughs> watchmakers love mistreat in return, you see. And the number of CEOs like uh, Jean-Christophe Babin and, uh, uh, you know, Georges Kern and uh, Jean-Claude Beaver and Edouard Mélan and even, um, you know, Watchbox uh, CEO who who said, you know, how much they love mistreat. So people understand that mistreat is about fair, accurate and balanced reporting. You know, uh, we're professionals. My editor's you know, are all professionals with 20, 30 years experience. I, as you know, I was former Reuters luxury goods correspondent. I've been writing about the business of luxury now for 15 years. I've written a book and therefore people know me. They know that they can trust me. They know that they will not be quoted. And they also know that if they, uh, you know, answer my phone call, they're going to learn something because I'm going to give them information as well. And in fact, um, it's also become easier because People call me, people say, Hey, you know, Miss Tweed, what are you doing? You're sleeping here. You should check this out. So it's really great. In fact, a good journalist should not be measured on the phone calls he or she makes, but on the phone call he or she receives. Um, in the sense that, you know, people say, Hey, you know, you, sh- you know, have you, have you checked this out? Are you following this? So I feel that I've built a community of people, um, who are all free thinkers. And in fact, I would argue that independence of thought, freedom of expression has become a luxury that Ms. Tweed embodies. And, and I think that's why people read and, and are ready to pay for my subscription. You know, let's remember I, I raised prices about two, three months ago by hundred euros. Now it's 295 euros for an annual subscription. And people say it's still, uh, quite cheap for the value and analysis that they're getting. So, you know, it's all been really great. And I keep getting, you know, new subscriptions every day. So numbers are really going up. No, that's fantastic. And I'm a subscriber. And and I like that because you're able to have conversations that I might not be able to have. But when you report about it, you know, I know what you're talking about. I understand the context and, and sort of what's at stake. What are, what are, what are some of the challenges? I mean, I think that it's difficult to not get too political. It's difficult to know how to report on something because they're sort of how the way you want to do it and the way the brand wants you to do it and things like that. Talk about some of the the things that you've had to to sort of, you know, figure out in order to maintain uh, the professionalism that you're seeking. Well, you know, I think people know that I always give brands right of reply. And I'm not going to write a story because brand X asked me to write a story. I'm going to write a story because I think readers want to read that. So, I don't work for anybody but my readers. They are my only customer, my only priority, my only concern and preoccupation and even obsession. So brands, you know, I give them right of reply. I'm saying, hey, I'm writing this. Would you want to say, you know, nine times out of 10, they, you know, they don't reply or they say no comment, which is fine. But I've given them ample time and opportunity to give their side of the story. And if they don't want to use it, that's fine. But I, I give them that and they know that. So I've never, ever, ever had, you know, a a nasty letter or a phone call from a brand or PR saying, you know, how could you possibly write this? 
Well, because it's true, number one, everything I write, because I verify every detail, every fact. And if I, if I get anything wrong, it will be corrected in the minute, the minute I find out, you know, maybe I got a number wrong or even a name misspelled, you know, that's immediately, you know, corrected. So that's, yes, it is the high quality of journalism that I believe in. And that's why I launched Miss Tweed, because I found that most media, as you know very well, depend on the ad budgets of, of luxury brands. Even the venerable New York Times, even, you know, business fashion and all these other media that write about luxury and fashion, they depend on advertising from luxury brands. At Miss Tweed, we don't have any advertising at all. Um, but so therefore we only, re you know, rely on subscribers and subscriptions. So that really puts us in a, in a very different position. And also it's a huge responsibility because yes, I do have that freedom to, to write, uh, what we want, but it also comes with great responsibility in the sense that I have to be careful. A, because, um, every word I write is, is, is read. I mean, the people who read me are, a lot of them, as you know, are CEOs, people who manage billions. They're people who work in the industry. They're people who invest in the industry. They're also, you know, the Wall Street community, analysts, fund managers, hedge funds. They want to know. And that's why they pay to, to, to read Ms. Tweed's material because they know that it's reliable and it will give them investment ideas. Or maybe they will say, aha, based on that information, maybe I should, you know, buy less of the stock or buy more of the stock. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a relationship of trust that I'm building with, uh, the community of people who subscribe to Ms. Tweed's who, you know, want that freedom of thought, but also, you know, they know that I'm well-wishing. I'm not here to say, oh, this guy's doing a terrible job, you know, whatever. I mean, Miss Tweed says when it's great and Miss Tweed says when it's not working out and why. And also we provide solutions. Well, you know, maybe one way to get out of the situation would be to do this and that. So, for example, this week, you know, I'm writing about success stories in, in French fashion you know, so we do write about things that are doing well. Um, and, uh, but sometimes we do write about say like, uh, Gerard Perigot and Ulysse Nardin. Somebody told me, uh, that, uh, <laughs> Patrick Prugnot is not a big fan of Miss Tweed because after the, the series of stories I've written on how caring had really done a terrible job managing these two watchmakers, they lost 16, 16 staff because of Miss Tweed stories. So hence they're not very much in love with Miss Tweed, but I never got a letter. And in fact, Patrick Prugnot, you know, I called him, I said, look, you know, um, what do you want to say? And he said, no, but I have to see you. I can't speak on the phone. I said, yeah, but my deadline's Sunday, you know, so now is the time. And he said, yeah, what you wrote was completely inaccurate. I said, okay, well then please tell me, I will change. What are the mistakes? And he never gave me an example. So, you know, <laughs> I'll let you draw your own conclusions. It is a challenge because until recently, no one has been there to really ask them to account for their behavior. Uh, you are coming into a space where someone in a CEO position has never really had to say, oh, yes, journalist, this is why I made that decision, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. And, and allow me to sort of distinguish myself here a little bit. You know, Blog to Watch is first and foremost a B2C publication. We're there talking to consumers. We try to cover the news that we feel relevant to people that buy and collect and are interested in the product. You are B2B. You are trying to report about the industry to the industry or to other industries that, that are, are, are not consumer-based. That means that we're sort of talking about very different things. So people in your position, as you know, are rare. 
and again, I, I think they, they should have answered you, but I'm also trying to give them a little bit of a little bit of sort of credence in the sense that they are not used to that type of environment of, 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 of being accountable, which is not good, but maybe give them a few years. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think this is 2022. We are, you know, in an era where transparency has become very important. Uh, I think even Swatch Group now is making some efforts, <laughs> which is the most notoriously, I, you know, secretive. Look, and look we're talking about an industry that continues to make like little spring powered uh, machines that tell the time the way they've been doing for like decades and decades. Like to be surprised that they do one thing the old way, but something else also the old way, like that's, it, it's kind of silly to be surprised by that. They, they're frequently temporarily challenged in terms of what era's business strategy they should apply. I, I think a lot of the companies have actually just closed up as a result, said nothing, been afraid, uh, felt that they're in a better position to shut their lips than than talk about these things, which again is unfortunate. But I've I've seen a lot of that. You know, what do you what do you what is your comment about them closing up? Well, I think it's the it's they they clearly have lack of experience communicating. I mean, let's come back to Audemars Piguet. You know, uh, they have a really overstaffed press office. But yet nobody ever answers questions. And the PR said, oh, so sorry, you know, I didn't see your email until Monday when I had emailed her, say, Wednesday, Thursday, the week before. And she never replied. And and uh, and then, you know, when they make announcements, they don't send press releases uh, to everybody. They give an interview to Le Ton newspaper. In fact, that is really not best practice. Best practice is same information to everybody at the same time. So they use a newspaper as a mouthpiece and, you know, they control every word. So the journalist is going to publish exactly what the brand asked them to write. And, uh, and, and it means that the other people, the other media, the readers, the investors, everybody else doesn't have that information at the same time. So that's not very professional from a communication point of view. So I think Udmar Piguet has a lot to learn on that front. You're also describing what is, in my opinion, a power dynamic where brands have a lot more power than the media and that in other eras where maybe the media had more power or just as much power, the dynamic was a little bit different. Um, And I think you'll agree that by and large, the power of media in terms of professionalism, prestige, uh, or just the sheer economics uh, has paled in comparison to the companies that they talk about. And and the companies are wise on this. And slowly but surely over time, they've gone from sort of taking advantage of it to clearly dominating, ruling the relationship and sort of saying uh, what is and isn't permissible behavior. Um, is there, you know, do, do you agree with that? And is there a solution to it? Is there a way for media in the in the in the future to regain some of that power. Well yeah, it's to to do what I'm doing is to, you know, say what they think. But okay, if, so they de- if they depend on ad budgets, they can. But I think you have two things here. One is, you know, the multimedia era and brands increasingly uh are turning themselves into media companies. Uh they are producing films, uh, you know, doing quite elaborate photo shoots. They, they, you know, they're firing on all cylinders on social media. So they are becoming, you know, uh, an entertainment, uh, a, a media company just by the content they produce, the quality content they produce. I mean, look at Dior, look at Chanel. Um, you know, they really have become uh, entertainers. Um, so 
they will say, oh, we don't need the media because we do our own. Okay, well, then the media say, well, what, what do we do then? Well, you know, I suppose since brands are getting just as much, you know, attention than we are, then maybe we need to differentiate ourselves and give what brands cannot give, which is an independent view and which is precisely what Ms. Tweed is doing. But you're also talking about the subscription model. And in a B, for a B2B publication, uh, much more so than a B2C publication, that's very realistic these days. And it, and it is you are in a fortunate position there that you uh, have received this audience, this paying audience, a growing one. Again, much more doable in B2B, even though it's inherently niche, than a B2C context. Um, but you've, you, you've came about at a time where that was finally ready five years earlier. It wasn't. I'm not sure. Maybe I could have done it five years earlier. Uh, okay, that's optimistic. I, fact, I like sometimes, it. Sometimes I wish I did. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but because, you know, you always, uh, I mean, you know, when you launch a business, it's the early days that are difficult because you work around the clock, uh, you know, and sometimes I wish all that was already behind me. And now it is. But, you know, it's 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 quite tough. I mean, I hardly have had one weekend in two years uh, because I publish on Sunday. So my weekend starts after I publish Miss Tweed until late Monday morning. That is that is obviously the the busyness that you have in exchange for being your own boss and ruling your own kingdom. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at a Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will look great on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. I, I think I think what you're you're trying to reestablish is a new era of of, of, cons- of media in the the luxury space that mm-hmm. has power that that has accountability from the companies that can really influence things and get information out there. Mm-hmm. There's so much smoke and mirrors. I, I think that's what you're trying to do. But you need strength. You need teamwork. You need you know tools and mechanisms and changes to happen. You know what are the practical spe- steps to take to to create that power dynamic between the brands and the media that I think it, you want and you're building towards. Well, yeah, I think it's happening as we speak. And in fact, I'm, you know, I have great relationships with my peers. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Le Temps newspaper, they have a free Miss Tweet subscription and I have a free Le Temps subscription. Same with Business of Fashion, same with, uh, you know, uh, Business Montre of Grégory Ponce. He has a free Miss Tweet uh, subscription. I have a free Business Montre. And uh, we quote each other and I create this collegiality, see, you know, I, you know, I, I quote them, they quote me and we respect each other and we like competition and that's what makes it fun. You see? And I think I am really creating that spirit of mutual respect. And, uh, but it doesn't mean, you know, we're going to be friends and I'm not going to publish a story because somebody's publishing a story. We're all super competitive and that's what makes it fun. Right. But however, there is an underlying, 
you know, un- understanding of, of, of really collegiality, you know, uh, mutual respect and, um, you know, and, and, uh, it, it, it really produces a good result. And I, and I, and I think, I think others subscribe to this philosophy and, and I think the more people do, uh, the better job we will be doing because, you know, we should all pay attention to what other rival media are doing. And I certainly am paying attention. And sometimes I'm like, Oh, ooh, I missed that story. Well done him or well done her, you know, and I even sometimes congratulate them. And like, sometimes they congratulate me. You see, this is, okay. a good spirit. this is really a good spirit, which I am definitely determined to, to support and continue entertaining. Let's talk about the competition because I think it, it's worth it's worth talking about Co- competitive how and compet- in competition for what? Well, for being the first to report something, for spotting a trend, you know, for quality content, content that people are ready to pay for. So is it not is it not true that you should all earn a sort of piece of the pie? Because the people you're talking to is the industry people and they're hungry for information because there isn't that much. And all of the people you've mentioned, you know, are sort of interested in slightly different things. Like you and Gregory Pons, you know, in theory do similar stuff, but it's very, very different if you really look at, at the, what you're covering. Is, isn't it the fact that you sort of all need to be there and that rather than sort of, you know, be competitive, cooperating might be a better idea? I just wonder if there's sort of strength in numbers when it comes to media as opposed to the the sort of gunslinger approach that, that the luxury industry has sort of forced, you know, a lot of, of luxury media to be. It's sort of you're, you're on your own, you're a solo freelancer, you're not really part of a strong organization. Well, no, I've never had any gunslinging. I've never, I've never had that. Because remember, you know, I was at Reuters for 13 years. I was at the Financial Times before. I was a Moscow correspondent for the FT. I was in London. You know, I'm, a, I'm not an unknown quantity here. But in, the colleagues, the colleagues, I'm saying. Yeah, and the colleagues as well. I mean, Women's Wear Daily, Reuters, Bloomberg, you know, they, they quote Miss Tweed. They quote Miss Tweed. So, you know, um, they've never made me feel like a second class, you know, reporter or citizen. Uh, never. So I, I don't have that. You see, I, I really, I, I've never had an issue, um, you know, and, and I have access. I have access to, you know, shows. I have access to summits. Uh, you know, I ask for accreditation. I get it immediately. Uh, that with the exception, of course, of Watches and Wonders, which I've reported on. That, <laughs> was, that was hilarious. Um, I mean, let, let's uh, just re- re- remind what that was about. So I was yeah, let's ex- hear about that. That's hilarious. So um, here I am, keynote speaker, uh, with Waco, who's a famous, you know, watch, uh, journalist, uh, revolution magazine. Uh, here I'm with way to, uh, do a talk. So we're both keynote speakers with, uh, Guido Terini of, uh, the CEO of, uh, Parmigiani Fleurier to talk about the rise of independent watch brands. So I, you know, that was to take place. I remember it was, I think it was April 2nd, something like that, or April 1st. And, um, you know, I go on the website of Watches and Wonders to get my accreditation and I get no reply one week, two weeks. I'm like, uh, okay, uh, <laughs> what's happening here? And, and then I got a reply saying, sorry, you know, uh, the Maisons don't want to accredit you. I'm like, ah, w- w- hold on. I'm a keynote speaker and I can't be accredited. How does that work? <laughs> and, uh, I was told that it was because Emmanuel Perrin, who's the president of the Fondation de la Haute Horlogerie, who's basically the gatekeeper, uh, has frowned upon some of my reports 
and therefore decided to just blacklist me. But he didn't think about the fact that I was going to tell people about it and that doesn't necessarily reflect well either on him or on the Fondation or on Watches and Wonders. So anyway, we'll see next year. I'll keep you posted whether I get accredited or not. <laughs> but to be honest, yeah. I mean, it wasn't the end of the world. It's, it's, you know, I'm, when these things happen, it's more there, you know, it's, they're shooting themselves in the foot. You see, because, well, you're part uh, of an elite group now of people that have been, you know, at some point blacklisted yeah. or banned from the, the show. It I was SIHH. It was what it was first. And now it's Watches and Wonders. Yes, I, I actually I feel that it is kind of a feather in my cap. It is definitely a privilege now to be, uh, you know, blacklisted. Also, knowing what happened with Bernard Arnault, the controlling shareholder and CEO and chairman of LVMH, who was blocked access by Richemont to Richemont's uh, stands at Watches and Wonders. So he was also blacklisted. So you know, if I'm in the same club as Bernard Arnault, then uh, you know, what does it tell you about Watches and Wonders? That's the thing. Right? What do you think that Richemont was afraid of? I don't think Richemont is afraid of anything. I think Richemont doesn't understand that it would benefit more from building relationship with independent journalists. You see, than not. I think they don't get it. They don't get well, it. It's a particularly hostile approach to say, madam, you're not allowed into our party. Yeah, especially when I'm keynote speaker invited by a brand. So they could just do what, like, yes, come on in and never talk to you, but just give you the basic politeness. You don't hate them. You don't love them. You just feel ambivalent and confused. And that, and that serves their purpose. But they actually, like, lobbed an arrow in your direction. And they're like, you know, survive this. Well, they think that they're creating harm, but in fact, they're creating harm to themselves, not to me. You see? And, and that's, that's the, you know, it's their problem, not mine. And in fact, I'll tell you another thing. Uh, you may remember that Ms. Tweed was really first on uh, the deal with, uh, between Richemont and Farfetch on Hughes Neta Porte. I mean, right, we you've talked about that a lot, yeah. Yeah, we were the first last year in October to say that they were in talks. Then in July, we had concrete details about an all-share deal that they were uh, preparing. And then lo and behold, in August, they announced the deal. And I found out that um, <laughs> Richemont, again, blacklisted me from the media call. They said, over my dead body. So Farfetch, with whom oh I have gosh. a very good relationship, uh, of course wanted to, me to be on the call because I'm going to write about this. And it's a very complex deal. I mean, really, I mean, it's super, you know, they're like, you know, several stages, it's equity. You know, as soon as you start going into equity, performance, all that, it's quite complicated. So it was really in both interests that I participate in this call so that I don't write mistakes, that I understand what this deal is all about. And uh, I was told, sorry, but we were barred by Richemont to let you on to this call. And I, I told Farfetch, I said, well, uh, hold, hold on a second. So is it Chosen Events or is it Johan Rupert who's running Farfetch here? I, I want to point something out. If you're, a, if you're a company and you use the tool of barring media, you have to ask yourself, what are you actually gaining? Is this tool even worth using? Like, yes, you have the tool. You have the right to like, legally say, tell someone or not tell someone something, that's true. But why are you even using this tool? What do you ever gain from it? It's not like the person's not gonna know it was said. All you're doing is publicly humiliating them and making them vengeful and angry. And so I, I just, I, I, I beg the question of why does this tool even come into play? Why are they even using this? There's no good instance. 
You know, like for a country to give someone sort of like a persona non grata, it's so serious. But these companies throw around these these press uh, blockades uh, like it, like it's nothing. Like like they're punishing a child in elementary school. It's it's kind of repulsive, isn't it? No, but really, I, I'm quite agnostic and cool headed about it. Um, you know, I'm not. I, well, no, because I'll tell you, uh, they're they're really harming themselves, and they don't understand that. You know. I mean, it's just having different human, uh, you know, values. I mean, when you when you cause harm to somebody else, you're also causing harm to yourself, you know. And and they obviously don't understand that, and they also don't know how much, you know, uh, support Ms. Tweed has in the industry, how much of a relationship of confidence, of of trust, I've built with you know, my community of readers and, and who are, by the way, you know, the CEOs of the biggest luxury brands. And why do they pick up the phone? When I send them a message, I say, Hey, I need to talk to you about something. They call me. Well, because they love what I'm doing. They think that what I'm doing is necessary. And the luxury industry has become one of the main pillars of the global economy. And, uh, it needs to, um, have a free flow of information for it to thrive. Just like any democracy, people have to be held accountable. And Miss um, Tweed helps that free flow of information and, and it contributes to the development of the luxury industry. In fact, that, those are the words from Jean-Claude Beaver, who is a legend in the watch industry. And he said something that was quite interesting, which you know I never thought about myself, but he said, Miss Tweed has removed controversy from you know, her reporting. Ms. Tweed is not about controversy. It's about, you know, factual reporting analysis. And he said, you know, controversy is often a media weakness, which we don't fall into because again, we are about fair, accurate and balanced reporting and nothing more. In fact, you know, we, um, we have a style, style guide at Ms. Tweed, which is 40 pages long. Um, you know, it's for my editors and so that they know Basically, they understand the editorial policy of Miss Tweed, and 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 the, one of the you know the introduction tells you Miss Tweed, you know we show, don't tell. So we don't tell people what to think. We say here are the facts, and we let you reader draw your own conclusions. I mean, we will bring you background, analysis, context to help you make your own you know conclusions. So you know, I think. Um, Miss Tweed is only going to go from strength to strength because more and more people are discovering that we are adding value, we are contributing to the industry, and it's a positive factor, and it's a win-win. I think it was like 12 or 13 years before that happened to you that I was banned from SIHH. I got mm -hmm. back in the same year, but I had a similar experience. So At you least... had the privilege of being banned. That's great. Oh, 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 yeah. The circumstances were a little bit different back then. I wasn't even announced that I was banned. I had to find out a very strange way. But then I went on a, uh, on a, <laughs> on a bit of a campaign uh, uh, to make it clear this was a bad idea. And I, I, I kept, I kept it well, semi-discreet. Uh, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to be open about the fact that it happened. They they changed their mind. They made the right decision, and, and they did it relatively quickly. But it took a lot of time. It took a lot of decision-making. And I think that I impressed it upon them. What I think is weird is that they sort of, like, haven't learned their lesson, and they continue to do so. And the the, the result of you going there would have been relatively innocuous. So you would have told a couple of industry people that maybe Richemont did a couple of embarrassing things at 
at, at, at Watches and Wonders. Not like, even, you know what I mean? Not even. Not even. I, oh my God. I'm not, again, I'm not about controversy. I'm not there to bash Rishmo. I know. I'm just saying that's the worst case scenario, which is a far more, you know, tepid option than just pissing off someone on a, on a relatively serious level. And you're, you're, you're cool about it. But the fact that you have to defend just what media does in general um, at, at this advanced point of our civilization is kind of absurd a little bit, right? Well, also, the other thing I found out, um, and for all journalists out there who are listening to our podcast, is that journalists are refused accreditation because brands believe that they're not going to market them. So basically, if you're not a mouthpiece of a brand, you're just not given accreditation, full stop. So if you're an independent journalist, the philosophy is we don't need you because we only want journalists who are trade publications who are going to who are going to write exactly what we tell them to write. That's I mean, that's where yes. the problem is. You see, no, but I'm just saying, of course, you know, it's not it's it's but it's, what what can be done. It's what, their party. They control access to the product. They know we can't just go in the store and buy one of every single one to test it out ourselves. They know that we have no right into their meetings and their discussions unless they bring us in. These are these are unchangeable things. Well, no, because you remember uh, there's been some changes. Now you have Rolex and Patek Philippe and Chopard and Tudor who are members of SCSH, or of, um, sorry, the Fondation and the Watches and Wonders. And they would like the fair to be much more open and to welcome more journalists. So they are embarrassed by this incident. And by the way, I've spoken to Rolex about it. And, you know, they, they, they are embarrassed by it. And, do you, you know, one can only imagine the discussions they've had with Emmanuel Perrin about this. You know, it's not only me. I'm just trying to use my example to show, you know, how there needs to be an evolution in, 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 in the psychology and in the, in the, you know, the way they see. I mean, what are trade fairs about? Trade fair is about showing your latest products. It's about you know, building contacts with media, building contacts with clients, with collect, you know, collectors, connoisseur, you know, it's, it's about creating a, a you know, a community of, of people who are really passionate about watchmaking. And therefore you want that community to be as big as possible. Right. And what they're doing is they're saying, no, we want to control image and information so much that anybody who's a free thinker will be barred entry. Well, you see that reflects bad on them, but it's it's their decision. It's for them to evolve. And and yes, I am pretty cool about it because I know that they're just shooting themselves in the foot. But, you know, how long will it take until they wake up? How many phone calls will they get from Patek, Chopin or Rolex saying this can't go on? We don't know. But I certainly know that there has been some discussions about this. And let's see how, you know, next year pans out. I'd like to know if the shows stick together or they split up. I think that there's a chance of that happening. There's no real answer to how to consolidate these things while providing, you know, guests an opportunity to actually meet with all the brands. You you shove too many meetings in too too few days. You can't do it. You ask people to be there for a month. They can't do it. Um, it's very difficult to figure out exactly what the solution is because there does need to be an opportunity to see many, many companies, especially for someone like yourself or me. So I don't know what the future holds. Um, I know that the Swatch Group still does not have a, 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 fair, a, yeah. a fair or plan of a fair that they could go to. I was thinking maybe they just take over like Couture in Vegas and just invite everyone out there. They, there's plenty of space for it out there. There's lots of people out there. Um, yeah, but it's really Geneva though. <laughs> 
heart. Okay, you know? they could do it in Zurich. Why doesn't the Swatch Group just do something in Zurich? Yeah, you well, know, I, I don't, I don't know. ask them. But you know, I did a story on this. It was my last story in August before the holidays about the trade fairs, about Geneva Watch Days, you know, growing and and the spirit of the Geneva Watch Days, which people absolutely love, which is. You know, you, you, you meet so many people, it's much more relaxed. Uh, people are just more accessible. Um, there's a really great cordial uh, atmosphere there that you don't find at Watches and Wonders. And, and more importantly, it's much more affordable, you know, um, for brands. So they can just, you know, get a lobby at a hotel, uh, you know, uh, sorry, a suite at a hotel or, or uh, you know, a space. They mutualize costs. And for them, it costs them, I think, like 15 less or 10 times less than Watches and Wonders, you know, and they see really quite a lot of people because more and more people are coming to Geneva Watch Days. And and the, one of the fundamental problems with Watches and Wonders is that it's too expensive and the terms are dictated to the brands and the small brands, sure, they, you know, they, they can't afford the big booths like the big brands and they're really at a disadvantage and and they're really resenting that you know why the, why can't they just take it out of switzerland i mean that's the problem these shows are ultra expensive because they're in switzerland if they did the show in the united states in asia maybe in a different part of europe the only hard part would be to move the watches which are probably the easiest luxury good to move around other than that they don't really need to be next to hq and for any reason um, no, I, no, you're right. But I think I think it, actually that's a brilliant idea, and I've heard that before. I think it would make sense to organize uh, a, a watch fair or a watch and jewelry fair, say in Florida, which is much more of a retail uh, center now than New York for many reasons, um, because you also have the Latin American clientele and you know and, and retailers and wholesalers uh, present, uh, much more accessible for them. So, you know, it would just, you just need somebody to say, Hey guys, let's do something in Florida. And I'm sure there would, a lot of people would follow, but right now it's, it's a bit of an autocratic regime with watches and wonders. We've just, uh, you know, discussed the philosophy, which is very much that of an autocratic regime, which is totally out of sync with 2022 and the world we live in. So the person who basically ran SIHH for many years, Miss Fabian Lupo, um, has now wor is working on a different show called Reluxury in Geneva, mm -hmm. which is, in a lot of ways, the very antithesis of SIHH. It's um, it's like a pre-owned show, and it's about being open to the public and actually selling watches there. And it's but it's at the President Wilson. Have you have you do you know at all about this story? And do you sort of find it ironic that she's gone and done something which is just similar but also very different? Well, Fabian Lupo, first of all, is a maestro in, you know, watch and uh, just fairs in general. She's a brilliant person. She's also a wonderful person from a human point of view. Yes, yes. She's and, a great person. Uh, and, uh, you know, she, she uh, in fact, she came to my event, you know, Miss Tweed organizes sort of Davos of Luxury. And we're doing one next year from 30th of March to 2nd of April. And she came to my event. She also you know, gave me some advice and, uh, she, you know, she, she really enjoyed it. And she, I've known about her project for, you know, ever since she's had the idea. And in fact, on November 7th, I will be the moderator for the roundtables at Reluxury. Uh, so I'm very much involved in that Reluxury project, which I think is brilliant because if there is one space in which, you know, brands need 
a kind of federative power, it's the secondhand market, which is really bubbling and growing from strength to strength. Why? Well, because you've got you know, the secondhand watch markets, you know, the secondhand, you know, for, for bags, uh, you know, leather goods, jewelry, and it's really becoming bigger. Let's remember that in the watch market, some say the secondhand market has become bigger than the market for new watches, just to tell you how big that business has become. So therefore she was really smart in coming up with the idea of, okay, it's time now to, tr- to create a trade fair so that we can discuss issues that are relevant to the main players in the secondhand market. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be fantastic. I, I'm really, really looking forward to it. So you you and many people have been asking the question, what are the purpose of trade shows in today's era? And what we're seeing is a lot of experimentation different ways of running a traditional show, having completely brand new shows. Do you have an opinion on what the market needs or are you just sort of sitting back and watching and enjoying all the experimentation happening before Mm -hmm. your eyes? No, I think trade fairs are needed. You know why? Because this is the luxury industry is, is really about human relationships. You know, in fact, sometimes I say this often, it's not what you know is who you know. You know, you build relationships with people and trade fairs allow you to meet people, spend time, understand. Um, and, and that cannot be replaced by Zoom calls or just by, you know, uh, mass communication. So people need trade fairs. People need to come together. Uh, you know, the CEOs, uh, I really enjoyed seeing how they were all chatting at Geneva Watch Days. I really listened to some really amazing discussions, say, between Georges Kern, you know, and Jean-Claude uh, Beaver or Jean-Christophe Babin. You, you know, I mean, they were really, um, happy to be there. And it was, it really creates a very positive atmosphere. Uh, one in which you, you know, you, it, you, you know, you, um, you want to, you want this to thrive. You want us to have a future. So I think there is definitely a future for trade fairs. Definitely. Now we're sort of at the end and I think it's important to talk about what's happening next. There is a lot of doom and gloom in the news about what recessions will do around the world to luxury goods. They say that uh, the value of things is going to really go down. I'm personally not so convinced that that's exactly what's going to happen, despite the fact that I do agree that recession is, is on the way in a lot of ways. Um, I think that for a variety of reasons, the luxury industry uh, will have enough pockets of resilience so that it doesn't hurt the industry too hard. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are your thoughts about uh, you know, what the, the, the next 18 to 24 months is going to look like? Because there are going to be changes in the market. I do think that it's going to affect mainstream consumers much more than wealthy consumers. But there could be things that you've thought about that I haven't. Well, you know, the world has become a pretty unpredictable place. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest factors going forward will be how quickly or slowly China reopens. And, uh, you know, LVMH last week was saying that business in China is still below levels of 2019 in terms of footfall and, you know, just in terms of trade generally. I think uh, the war in Ukraine is also going to uh, keep energy prices high um, and, uh, you know, electricity, uh, gas, that's a big issue. Uh, I've written about this as well, as you know. Um, you know, for example, in Switzerland, the government has asked companies to cut their energy consumption by 20%, which is, 
which is going to uh, wreak havoc in the supply system and the supply chain for watchmakers who are already struggling to meet demand because of the pent-up demand after the pandemic. So the, before even the you know, energy consumption uh, uh, cuts demands, there was already a trouble to meet demand for watch right. parts. So that's, I think we're going to see some serious issues there. Um, I think, uh, you know, the U.S. market has already started to slow down. I think Europe has benefited and is still benefiting from U.S. consumers coming with their you know, the US dollar being strong. So they're making bar, you know, they're making, you know, uh, pretty attractive, uh, you know, shopping here in, in, in Europe and they're coming to spend money. Um, that's going to continue probably until the end of this year. Um, but next year, let's see how it is. Um, I think these are all, you know, there's several factors here into play. Um, I, I think, yes, the, uh, how do I say, the super affluent, of course, will continue to spend, but the ones below might have second thoughts. And in fact, we've seen already uh, that uh, the, sorry, sorry, I'm going I'm to repeat this. Uh, we've seen already that um, the price of second, you know, watches on the secondhand market has dropped because uh, people are thinking, well, maybe now is not the time to spend 200000 on a Rolex Daytona. So I think that is definitely another factor that we need to keep in mind. So what is some options that brands can use to boost these, these down areas, right? They're going to have trouble in China. What can they do to offset that? Can they invest in particular areas? Uh, can they shift inventories and attention to other parts of the world? You know, what are some of the things that, that you would tell them to do in order to counter some of these obvious downturns in various sectors that they've traditionally relied upon? Well, I think they have to remain agile. I think they have to, uh, you know, really adapt quickly to changing realities. So I think uh, those brands that will continue communicating, uh, investing in markets that are growing, um, we've seen a lot of brands now in South Korea, which is another pocket of growth. I think uh, that will be crucial for the future. Astrid, thank you so much. Please remind everyone where they can find your website and any other places that you'd like to plug. Oh, well, you know, Miss Tweed is www.misstweed.com. Um, you can follow me also on LinkedIn uh, personally, or Miss Tweed has an account, or, you know, Miss Tweed Official is the Instagram account. And uh, if uh, you want to join our uh, luxury at the summit event, um, you have to be a subscriber. And it's from March 30th to April 2nd in Val d'Isère, which is an amazing ski resort. So morning skiing, afternoon conferences, party in the evening, which is a pretty nice program. Sounds like it'll be a fantastic time. My guest has been Miss Astrid Vendland of Miss Tweed, and this has been the Superlative Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com.